Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to this bonus episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas, arts editor of the TLS, and I'm delighted to be joined by Simon McBurney, the artistic director of Complicite Theatre Company, to talk about their forthcoming project, The Dark is Rising, and what else is in store. It is deep midwinter, just before Christmas. The world is cold and sunless. There's a feeling of things not being right in the air. I'm not, in fact, talking about our present moment, but the setting of The Dark is Rising by Susan Cooper part of a series of that name which explores old ideas and interminglings of good and bad, everyday and uncanny, modernity and myth. Next week it will be on the BBC World Service in an adaptation by the endlessly innovative and influential Complicité Theatre Company. Its co-founder and artistic director Simon McBurney adapted it, directed it and narrates it and we are delighted that he's here today to talk to us. Simon, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Thank you for having me. At the moment, in fact, in the south of England, where the book is set, the weather is behaving as it should, isn't it, for once, and providing the perfect backdrop for the opening of The Dark is Rising. It's really marvellous because the young boy, Will, who's 11 years old, looks out of the window on the first page of the book and sees a sprinkling of grey snow and says, it's my birthday tomorrow. But he knows that there is one thing that he wishes for, which he won't get, which is snow. And when it does begin to snow, and it doesn't stop, and the snow is there in an attempt, if you like, to overwhelm the world as an act of power on behalf of what is known as the forces of darkness. And before I go on any further, Mm -hmm. what I would like to say is that I did not adapt it. I had co-adapted it. Oh, sorry. Yes. Yes. With Robert McFarlane. Yeah. Robert McFarlane, who's the most wonderful uh, writer and also a friend and collaborator. And he it was who introduced me to the book a few years ago. And then I started reading it to my children. And then we couldn't stop reading it. Yes. And I did all of the quintet of books. And it was very exciting. We did it late at night and we sometimes even used torches. And yeah. I think the most extraordinary thing about these books is their eeriness. It's not just that they are books which give you scares and horror, but they get under your skin in a way that many other mythical books don't. And they, of course, have been enormously influential because Philip Pullman named, apparently, in homage, Will in The Subtle Knife after Will in The Darkest Rising. So Mm. they are rather, they're beautiful books, rather secret in the sense that some people of a certain generation know them very well, And for others, of course, there will be this wonderful introduction, I hope, for people who enjoy it. And if you don't, if you can't get it on the World Service, you will also be able to find it both on podcast and on Radio 4, because Radio 4 have asked for 
a version which is going to be 45 minutes a day i think it starts on boxing day i'm not quite sure okay perfect so yeah. there'll be lots of different opportunities and the reason that we are starting it on the solstice is because that is the day of the first chapter of the book and then the chapters follow if you like the days across christmas and that is when the conflict takes place in this particular one of the quintet the dark is rising that's when the conflict takes place between will who discovers that he is part of a time traveling group of extraordinary beings called old ones he discovers this on his 11th birthday but he also discovers that he has a quest which is to collect the six great signs of power which are little circles quartered by a cross which he has to loop on his belt and once he has got all the signs of power then he is able if you like to there is this huge showdown at the end of the book mm -hmm. the dark is suppressed but not vanquished in the implication that of course it will return again yeah well i was going to ask why you choose to adapt it now but you've answered me with talking about robert mcfallon and you discovering it as well it's one thing about the book, because it's nearly 50 years old, it's nearly bang on 50 years old, isn't it? It does amazingly still feel very modern. It's got this kind of rebuttal of insularity. It seems to me it does this very difficult thing of celebrating English myth and countryside without seeming at all little Englandy. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's very it's kind of international, which is something you emphasize from the start in this in this version, don't you? Yes. He will receives a a gift from his brother who is in the army and is stationed in Jamaica and he is given a gift by a Jamaican when Will's brother James was in carnival out of the blue he was given a gift and it turns out to be a carnival extraordinary carnival mask but of course what happens is that this alerts Will to the fact that the old ones are from all over the world. And we have chosen, if you like, to put this right at the front of our version so that you meet Will and then you suddenly catapult across the world to Jamaica and you meet a Jamaican old one and you realise that this is a group of these people, are men and women, are scattered throughout the globe from all different nations. But it's not only that, I think, which makes this not so insular and, as you called it, Little England. I think the fact that the myths that are being evoked are myths, like most myths, lie under so many different cultures. Myth of struggle, myth of creation, myths about the future and about our origin in the past. And so we get a sense of the land being older than the culture, which now rather superficially sits on top of it. Mm. Just as we get the sense that our common heritage, of course, which it is, is much older than the way that we think about it when we actually live our all too brief human lives. Mm, I was going to talk about the myth and history and religion as well. It's very deft, it seems to me, what she does, because she includes Christianity, for instance. She makes it very much part of the picture, but it doesn't provide all the answers, nor is it irrelevant. It's, as you said, it's this sense that it's it's one of the things lying on top of this very ancient land, I guess. 
That's right. And you get the sense as at one point Will, when he enters these moments of timelessness, because he is a time traveler and he needs to enter these timeless spaces, I suppose, which open like cracks. There are also great wooden doors which lead into different times. When he enters them, he, at one point, he is rescued by an extraordinary horse which flies him through the air and he looks down over the countryside and he sees these Neolithic symbols carved into the hillsides below him and he recognizes these as being connected to him and to our age so there is a sense of connection with a deep past as well as the immediate present. Mm. And why did you decide to do it this way? I know that you have used sound design before a lot, haven't you? Particularly, I think, for the encounter when you gave the audience the headphones and used the binaural techniques like so to reproduce the way we hear things naturally to get this really immersive effect. But why did you choose to do it for this story? Well, we use a binaural head and for anybody who's listening to this, a binaural head imitates the human head. So when you hear something which has been recorded binaurally, and truly you can only hear it to its fullest extent if you're wearing headphones, which is mm. why it's wonderful that it's going on a podcast because most people listen to podcasts through headphones. Of course, not everybody, but a huge proportion. And what happens is you feel that the world literally surrounds you so that if you were in the jungle you could feel and hear the mosquitoes right behind your head or coming up to your ear and in this case in the dark is rising you can really literally sense the crunching snow and the breath of horses right mm. up against your ears and behind your neck and i decided that in order to bring the timeless parts of the book even more present i would record all of those binaurally and the present time would be more conventionally in stereo so while it's a wonderful sound the contemporary world if you like is a little more prosaic and it makes the timeless and magical world more physical and real or if you might you could say heightened in a way. So somebody banging on an anvil is, is, is very physically present. And, you know, the black rider who has red hair and blue eyes, his presence becomes really quite disturbing when mm. you hear him in binaural sound because he seems to be stalking, literally stalking around your own head. Actually, I'm glad you said that about the hoofbeats and the horse because we've got a little bit that we can play in a minute. That's exactly one of the bits I chose because the horses sound so wonderful. But what I mean also is why did you choose to do it only in sound and not stage it, as it were, not a stage production? What was there about it that made you want to do an audio version? Well, I have been lucky enough to start a family rather late in life. I have no other family and I met the most remarkable person and we decided that we wanted to have a family and one of the incredible joys of being in a family is as the children come to tell them stories 
And so that was really a habit that has gone on for the last 13 years as my children have been growing up. And the storytelling that takes place in bed every night is such a very, very intimate event. And that intimacy, of course, is most present, I think, in terms of what we hear, in terms of the radio, in terms of the recorded spoken word. When I was little, I had a record of A Christmas Carol, and I used to play it over and over because I could really sense, I really felt as if it was being told to me alone. Mm. And so there is something in this book which is almost not possible to translate into other forms. And I think extremely difficult, would be extremely difficult to translate onto the stage. It has been, somebody has attempted to do it on film with disastrous results. By using the sound world, by doing it on the radio, you have a really tremendously visual sense of where you are because you can evoke it with sound and just a few words and everybody who's listening immediately is plunged into wherever you are because it's their imaginations of course which are engaged your imagination is far more real than any sort of fakery that you might put in front of your eyes or even in the theater it's so exciting so it's the oldest form of storytelling anyway it's one person telling a story to another person Yes, of course, in this particular case, it's heightened because although I narrate it, when we cut it together, the vast amounts of things that we cut were essentially my narration. It became less and less important as we discovered that things were unnecessary. On the other hand, it's a wonderful form of glue which can take us from place to place. And I try to narrate in a way which might make people feel that I'm with them and very... Mm quietly observing the scene uh, together just to give them the sense of sort of what kind of shape of room they're in, what people are wearing, um, what we can see in the distance and so on. Mm. So it's a kind of helping hand rather than a strident narration. This like, yeah, someone just next to you in your ear pointing out, look at that bit, this, this is happening over here, this is why. We can hear a clip of it here. This is from the second episode. As I said, I've chosen a bit with the horse because, as you say, especially in the headphones, they just sound, it just sounds as though there's a horse behind you. It's amazing. So this is where Will Stanton is having, he's having a very strange day on his birthday and he's talking to John, a local blacksmith. John Smith turned and looked down at him for the first time and compassion crossed his weathered face. And you'll learn much more, for this is only your first day. My first day? So follow your nose through the day, boy. Just follow your nose. Suddenly, a white mare, without rider or harness, trotted into the clearing towards them. A reverse image of the rider's midnight black stallion, and she came to stand quietly beside Will. Good mare, good mare. Come in good time. Look well, young Will. I've not seen a horse like this ever before, but this will not be the last time. Oh, she's beautiful. Mount. Bitch. I'm not joking. It's your privilege. Take hold of her mane where you can reach it, and you will see. So Will reached up into her mane and... <sighs> but how did I get up here? Well, when I have shot her, she will even carry you, if you ask. 
John, no. I think... I think I'm supposed to go alone. <sighs> Thank you, John. Thank you so much. Goodbye. Go well, young Will. Remember, Will, follow your nose. Stick to the path. And can I ask you about your next project, Complicite's next project, which is a staging, isn't it, of uh, Olga Tokarczuk's Drive Your Plough Over the Bones of the Dead, which is, right. I was trying to think if they had anything in common and snow was the only thing I could think of, really. Lots of snow, but a very different book, a kind of present-day animal rights noir. What drew you to that one? I think she's the most remarkable writer. And it's fascinating because you use, you describe it as a present day animal rights noir. And those are only three of, I would say, a dozen different themes and ideas. That yes. She yeah. Juggles like some extraordinary circus performer, sort of verbal circus performer throughout the book, because it's also about the invisibility of older women. It's also about what happens to a woman as she gets older and she goes from being a construction engineer to a teacher to somebody teaching part-time in a little village or on the outskirts of southern Poland. It's also about the nature of the land in Central Europe, that part of Poland, which borders on Czechoslovakia, which was, of course, until the second end of the Second World War, Germany, all of these were German villages. And everywhere which is in conflict now, places like Lviv in the western Ukraine, were Poland and south of that Drohobych, where, of course, famously Bruno Schulz came from. And all of those people after the Second World War were moved to western Poland on this area of land where they themselves feel sort of extremely impermanent and something's uncertain. And in this uncertain world, if you like, the dominance of the local and quite ag aggressive local patriarchy, who are all hunters, they are the people who, as it were, rule over this area, which has a kind of the whole land has a kind of darkness and she's constantly alluding in a, in another thematic twist to the fact that there are as many bodies under the ground as there are trees because of the way that this land has changed hands so you get something if you like there is the sense of the darkness of europe which overcomes her you know, the darkness of all these men's wars. So these are just some of the themes that she is mm. holding in her hands, you know, as well as, yes, you could say animal rights, but also a philosophical meditation on the nature of animal consciousness. Are we the only ones with souls? And if so, what on earth does that mean? And why should humans have souls and animals not have souls? And then, of course, there is another theme, which is the whole question of time and prediction. As flies are we to the gods, they kill us for their sport. Are we manipulated by forces which are much greater than us, which we can't know about? 
or are we actually autonomous and able to predict our own lives? The theme of what we're doing here and how we exist within the vastness of our infinite universe is something which obsesses her. So, you know, there's the theme of her looking up at the stars as an astrologer and trying to make sense of the world and not only look up at the stars, but look at the very, very small as she becomes fascinated with beetles and mushrooms that grow underground. And it's the most extraordinary story because it works on so many levels. And if you like, I think the most accurate description of this central character, Janina, is the fact that she's looking for shapes, if you like, or forms. She's looking to try to find the patterns that make up our world and also register those which, if you like, have got out of shape, out of hand. And perhaps the dominant shape that has got out of hand is the fact that essentially this is a world which is has been shaped by men and this imbalance has meant that we live in a very precarious environment and one of the things that the central character is doing is trying to correct that imbalance yes yes she is against the hunters there's also i should say i'm not claiming by the way that mine was a a good summing up of it (laughs) no no of course (laughs) i think it was very fascinating because it's a brilliant summing up well not really but it's it's very partial of course you you could try and do that in so many different ways and also not get it because she's a, a poet as well as a consummate storyteller, you know. I was going to mention Blake as well. Nick does the very bold thing of talking about translations of Blake within the book, which for the translator, apart from anything else, must have been, you know, a hell of a thing to work with. This amazing idea when you talk about the consciousness, there's that the particular speech when she says, someone is crunching on someone else's bones, someone's got a bag made out of someone's skin, that kind of thing. And she completely changes the perspective by referring to the animal as someone yes not just the human she says you know he's carrying a bag made of someone's skin and it just it's so such a shocking passage that because it just sounds just horrific and you realize that's how she sees it and that's a way of seeing it yes and i was going to say actually a lot of a lot of writing fiction and poetry that we encounter now is dealing with the climate crisis and our relationship with the, the rest of the natural world. How We're not separate, but we are a part of it. This seems like something that Complicité has been exploring for a while too, and you're going to do that in this show, are you? Well, I, I've, I've, I think we've always been interested in the idea of connection, what connects people up, both externally in terms of their physical presence, but also in terms of their inner worlds. And equally, what then connects all of that to the land that they tread on. So the, you know, the work that we did with John Berger 30 years ago called The Three Lives of Lucy Cabrol was very much about, it's a story from the mountains of France, about a mountain peasant woman called Lucy Cabrol. And that was very much about how topography develops consciousness. And in that inseparable relationship, in that inseparability between 
the human body and the land they step on is perhaps the source of the numinous or you know the spiritual is when everything is connected up now that i think olga tokarchuk really touches upon but also the book is a stream of consciousness and it is about storytelling and that was something which was very very present in the encounter that was the subject essentially of the encounter was the questioning about the nature of the way that our conscious mind is built and which is built out of stories and so are those stories the right ones you know at mm. the moment this is what you're everywhere you look on um social media right now it's a very fascinating moment for the way that we tell stories it's also a terrifying moment you know i've just seen an interview with mick lynch for example from some extraordinarily unpleasant i can't remember one of these presenters on good morning britain unbelievably unpleasant who was peddling a narrative about you know how awful it is that people are striking at christmas and it's very very fascinating because that's an extraordinary perversion of a much deeper narrative which is about inequality and the fact that people do not have enough to live on um uh, and and that we are in a moment of intense suffering and that we need to realize what that is which is what the of course this you know striking protest is about and it's a fascinating sort of reversal of narrative about greed and so in drive your plow what janina what olga realizes is that quite a lot of people who are seen as outsiders are perhaps onto something because they are not within the central cultural narrative which we're all buying into all the time we think this is what is right about the world and just, of course we join on to it and the consequence of that of course is that we don't we cease to think about what we're doing and one of the principal things is exactly where, where we started this conversation is the effect of separation and disconnection with the world around us which of course is the most terrible sort of ripping apart of the human story because we are all part of nature to suggest that nature is something outside of us and not part of us something that you go to for the weekend or perhaps have a holiday house in of course it is monstrous we are all part of nature and we can't escape it just as we can't escape the planet you know uh, mm. and that's what was really rather wonderful about the fact that i was desperately trying to get to this podcast and give you the time but i was <laughs> prevented that from the the wonder of the fact that ice and snow were were blocking my my path to my home but that's just a very rather banal reminder of the fact that we live in this world but the mm. of connection yes you're right i'm sorry it's a rather long-winded answer no that's, that's okay i think this is a fundamental one which is very interesting within the theater because of course you are you have to make a connection with an audience every night you go out you need to connect with that audience and connect that audience up and one mm. of the fascinating things about the theater of course is that what we know from recent scientific experiments is that when people are watching something in the theater apparently about about 10 minutes after it starts everybody's uh, hearts begin to beat in unison really everybody's the majority of people's hearts beat in unison yes wow i didn't know that there is a very very powerful sense of connection and collectivity possible mm. 
in the gathering of people. My father was a prehistorian and he said, well, when he knew that I was fascinated, he died a long time ago, nearly um, more than 50 years ago now. Uh, no, nearly 50 years ago. He said the theatre is about the scale of the human community. So it can be anywhere between 50 and, you know, 3,000. And so every time you go out, you are making a community. And that story is a communal one. It's not one just being presented to you as a performance, although, of course, it is now monetized everywhere. It is actually about making people feel that they are in this space together for this moment and that they are conjoined because they are all watching someone something which is patently not true <laughs> you know, you've got you've got face paint on and you've got it's an agreement to sp suspend your disbelief and yet what the effect of that is that you all the entire audience imagine the same thing at the same time even though people might like it or react to it slightly differently their imaginations in that moment are conjoined. And of course, that what that tells you is that that most secret thing, which is our imagination, our inner consciousness, which we always think of as our own, is not our own. It is something which is we share with others. And our inner world is not just something private. It does belong to a collective unconscious as well. Mm. Well, no, I'm thinking about because you're talking about theatre and the companies and the audience and the connection I hope you don't mind my mentioning that the the theatre world in general and and complicity very much in particular still mourning the death of Marcello Magni of course who was your another co-founder uh, and a completely extraordinary and practitioner he could just I've seen him win over an audience within three minutes you know and everybody would have just followed him out of the theatre absolutely no problem and he was married to Catherine Hunter, who plays Janina in Drive Your Plough. Presumably you all must feel his influence all around the place. Yes, it's very painful. Uh, the death of somebody very close to you is extremely painful. Um, Sorry, we don't, you don't have to talk about that if you don't want to. I, just, I, just, I actually just wanted to sort of pay a tribute to him. Because... No, no, but completely. I'm delighted to talk about him because talking about him brings him present mm. and um he remains he is a person who is so alive that out of all of us all of us who started the company and there are many and i know it's me speaking here but there are so many women and men and children and different people who've passed through the company that it's really a a huge it's been a huge collective endeavor over nearly 40 years uh, with very many different landscapes that we've traversed across very different kinds of work from and marcello is a fundamental is a fundamental part of that i think that the pain of grief the pain which comes from going this person is no longer here, no longer physically here in a physical form, leads you to ask where they are now. And as well as this constant sort of daily shock when you see his photograph and I go, oh my God, you know, it was fine feeling that I didn't see him every day, but I knew that he was there. But now mm. seeing his picture, knowing that he is not there, 
and having made one of the very first shows that we made together was a show about death and it was the funniest show we ever made there were more jokes in that we we would feel he and i and joss hauben who was the third character in what feels like the beginning of a bad joke an englishman a belgian and an italian and it was a show in which we felt that if we didn't get a belly laugh every 10 seconds then the show was a total failure so grief doesn't go away obviously with the funeral or even a short period afterwards it changes shape Mm -hmm. and your relationship with the dead one's relationship all of our relationships with the dead are something which has a relationship with our relationship with nature that's a lot of relationships i'm talking about but the way that we feel connected to nature the way that we under let's put it this way when we understand without having to say anything when we know that we are part of nature we feel in a state of enormous security and presence and reverence for the world and in that connection is frequently the connection with the dead we bury the dead in traditional british society since you know all over our land are neolithic and prehistoric burial sites and they are gathered together we gather our dead together Mm. and then later with the arrival of christianity we gathered together them together around the church as if they form a community and in that community we placed ourselves they were part of our lives they were part of our worlds and that has been an incredibly important part of our journey with Marcello is to as we make this to imagine him as part of our community not in a sentimental sense but in a very real and 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 present way not to avoid his name but to allow him to be present and when of course at certain moments grief overcomes you and you break down in tears then we can all gather together and stand and admit those tears and you know (laughs) um, live through that grief and then just carry on again rather than hiding it which I remember when my father died the show we made which was called a minute too late was a lot about Mm. the reactions that happened when my father died where when it was um the British didn't know how to react. I remember people crossing the road rather than talking to me because they wouldn't know what to say. And people saying a few weeks later, you know, are you feeling better now? As if it was a cold. And of course, that is an extraordinarily dissociative action, really, because our relationship with the dead is something which makes us a human community. And one of the problems which I think John Berger outlines brilliantly, is that in this disconnection with the dead, just as our disconnection with nature, or for example, our disconnection between men and women, the way that men treat women, or the way that we determine race and see people as separate from one another, 
has fundamentally led us to a point of crisis. I mean, what he says very beautifully, John Berger, which we used at the beginning of The Three Lives of Lucy Cabrol, he's written this wonderful piece called 12 Theses on the Economy of the Dead, trying to address this connection with the dead. And the first one goes, I think, the dead surround the living. The living are the core of the dead. In this core are the dimensions of time and space. What surrounds the core is timelessness. So the dead inhabit, I think what he's saying, this timeless place. We, of course, are thrown into time and space. And the dead are still present through our imagination. But the number 12 uh, here, we eventually get down to number 12, which I think is very, very interesting because it relates to the situation we're in now. It relates to the question of, you know, a darkness rising. It relates to the book, Drive Your Plough Over the Bones of the Dead. And he writes, John Berger, how do the living live with the dead? And that's a critical question, because if we imagine that when the point about church for many people was not necessarily Christianity, but it gathered by going into the churchyard, you were with your dead every Sunday. Uh, we don't do that anymore. So how do the living live with the dead? And then he writes, until the dehumanization of society by capitalism, all the living awaited the experience of the dead. It was their ultimate future. By themselves, the living were incomplete. By themselves, the living were incomplete. And I find that very beautiful, that we are completed by the dead. Thus, he says, living and dead were interdependent, always. Only a uniquely modern form of egotism has broken this interdependence with disastrous results for the living who now think of the dead as the eliminated. In other words, that they are no longer present or connected to us. And I think that I'm not trying to construct a specious argument for the fact that the dead are not gone. They are gone physically. They are not in this life uh, which is being lived by their contemporaries in this present moment. But that isn't to say that we have lost our connection with them. Hmm. And keeping that connection is a key to being able to create a society in which we can all live and which we can imagine a future in which we can all participate in. But also a way of thinking about, as you mentioned, thinking about animals and nature in inverted commas. Precisely. Yeah. Because we're all bound up into this complex interdependence we are all part of this same world, this same universe. And as I said before, you can't escape it just as you can't escape the planet. No, I'm afraid I'm going to have to sever our brief connection now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, our brief interdependence. But thank you so much for talking to us. Not at all. And to anybody who's listening, thank you for listening. <laughs>